Okay. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Breakneck Through the Bible. Uh, name is uh, Mordechai Becher, and I work for Gateways, as you can see. Um, hopefully, you all have an outline. Um, what we're going to try to do tonight in one hour is cover the book of Genesis. Now, uh, I know that sounds a little ambitious, uh, but we're just going to do an overview. Uh, this actually is the book of Genesis, but as you'll note, it's, it's pretty large. That's because this is what's called Mikraot Gedolot which is basically a book that contains within it not only the actual text of the Bible, but many, many, many commentaries. In fact, there's a lot more commentary than text, as you might expect. So uh, we're not going to go through all that, but we will try and look at it. This is actually the, the way the text of Genesis appears in a very early codex, what's called the Leningrad Codex. It was one of the oldest uh, copies of the, of the Torah. Of course, we use the scroll for the Torah, and it doesn't look like that, it looks, but, it, but it's a similar type of writing. There's no vowels. There are no sentence division, no punctuation. Uh, it, is a, it is pretty much a text which you have to have a tradition in order to really read it. It's not so, not so simple. But anyway, that's, the, uh, that's how the book of Genesis um, actually looks. And that would be the, right there is the first sentence, which if you see, uh, if you can see that, it's Bereshit, Barai Lokim, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Very, very famous sentence. If we have time, we'll try to explain that one sentence a little bit more. Excuse me, one thing. From here, maybe I'm too far away, but it looks like there are vowels. Yes, because this is from a printed codex. This is from a handwritten codex, but not from a Torah scroll. So the Torah scroll that we use in the synagogue, no vowels. But what we have are these things called codex, codex or codices, would be the plural, uh, which are the very ancient Torah scrolls, or not Torah scrolls, very ancient manuscripts which were written with all the vowels and everything so people can use them to to get an accurate copy the most famous is the aleppo codex from aleppo in syria which went through a long long history uh was written in around the ninth century uh in the city of tiberius that's the oldest one in tiberius it was then sold to someone in jerusalem a karite family in jerusalem it was then stolen by the crusaders who held it to ransom and sold it to the highest bidder, which was a Jewish family in uh, Alexa- in Egypt. I, I think it was in uh, Alexandria, uh, in Egypt. Uh, it was then, uh, from Alexandria, it was sold to a family in Aleppo, in Syria, and it remained there until 1948. Ninth century, 12, right? It's quite amazing. In, the Jews in Aleppo, Syria, kept it very, very carefully and guarded it. In 1948... Unfortunately, uh, with the incitement of the Syrian government after the establishment of the State of Israel, there were riots against the Jews of Syria, pogroms, etc. And although the Syrians were not allowed officially to hurt the Jews physically, but they were encouraged to burn down the synagogues and to, to destroy Jewish property and to burn down the synagogues. The, the Aleppo synagogue was in fact burnt down. And the Codex, however, was not completely destroyed. Uh, about, about a quarter of it to a third was destroyed in the fire. It was saved by a Jew in Syria who kept it secretly there until the 1950s. 1950s, it was smuggled out of Syria via Brooklyn to Israel and it was brought, and, but it, uh, and it was eventually brought to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, uh, where they have just recently published a new, um, a new Bible from using the Aleppo Codex. That's a little bit of a, I mean, it's, a, it's an ama- that's not all the story. There's a lot more to the story than that. Um, uh, we, how do we know about the third that was destroyed in fire? Because we actually have, um, people took notes from it, and there was a rabbi from Lithuania who went to Jerusalem, a scribe, 
who all his life wanted to see the Aleppo Codex, didn't make it there, uh, but his son went there to see the Aleppo Codex, and his son took extensive notes on his copy of the Bible, brought it back. That was lost until the 1980s, when the apartment building in which that scribe had lived in Jerusalem, a place called Kiryat Moshe, was about to be demolished, and there was a large room of old books which they cleaned out, and in the book in the, in the room of old books, guess what they found? His original Bible with the notes from the Aleppo Codex. It's just lots of wild stories about it. But that's, I'm digressing. If, if, at this rate, we're not going to get anywhere near it. We may get through the first sentence, but okay, we'll try. So that is how it, how it looks. Now, uh, it is known by a number of different names. The first name it's known by is Bereshit, which means in the beginning, hence the Latin name Genesis, uh, which means in the beginning, and that is based on the opening words, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, or as some would translate it more accurately, in the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth. Uh, there are different ways of translating it. Uh, that would be more grammatically correct to say, because Bereshit means beginning of. It doesn't mean beginning. Right, uh, so Bereshit really means the beginning. It's a conjunctive word. It's attached to something beyond it or uh, next to it. So actually, that's the that's one name of it um, in the beginning. Uh, the next name it is called Sefer Hayashar, which means the book of the upright. The Talmud says, why is it called the book of the upright? Because it's the book the Yashar people who are straight, because it refers to the lives of our patriarchs and matriarchs: Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka. Rachel and Leah, the uh, three, uh, the three fathers and four mothers of the Jewish people, who are described as Yesharim. It's interesting. The word Yesharim is translated in two ways. The connotation of Yesharim means number one, they were upright in the way they dealt with people. Justice and uh, and honesty and uprightness was very very major in their lives. And secondly, uh, it was a positive predisposition towards humanity. They all had a very... Abraham, um, the city of Sodom, last week's Torah portion, the city of Sodom, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom. It's totally corrupt to the extent that God's decided to destroy it. He tells this to Abraham. Abraham, what's his reaction? Can you save some of them? No. He he says, can you save the whole lot? He says, you're going to destroy it when there's righteous people in it? God says, I'm telling you there's no righteous people. He says, what if there's 50? God says, if there's 50, I'll save it. There's not 50. So Abraham says, 45? God says, sorry. 40, 30, 10. He goes down to 10. There's not even 10. But Abraham, although I'm sure he hated what was going on in Sodom, he despised the evil that the people were doing, but he wanted them to live, he wanted them to exist. It was to hate the evil and love the person. So that was the characteristic of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and that is why it's called Yisharim. So two reasons. A, they, it teaches us how to walk in an upright fashion, I don't mean in terms of our posture, not Pilatus, right? But uh, rather it teaches us how to uh, walk in this world and deal with people in the world in an upright fashion. No problem, here's some outline. And to walk in this world in an upright fashion like the patriarchs. That's the book of Genesis. It's interesting to note, as we'll see further on, Genesis, someone asked me, you know, there are 613 commandments in the Torah. Only three appear in the book of Genesis. Which means Genesis is almost devoid of actual commandments. Right? But what is it meant to teach us? Very interesting. You've probably heard the term Derech Eretz. Derech Eretz means literally walking through the world, the way of the world. So, and there's a statement that Derech Eretz, Kadmalo Torah, meaning uprightness, the ability to walk in the world, deal, deal decently with people, and be, to use the Yiddish term, a mensch, uh, to be a good person, that precedes the commandments. 
the commandments are speaking to someone who is already basically a good, you know, basically human decency. So therefore, the book of Genesis is what we call Derek Eretz, i.e. how to act in this world, common decency, etc., which is unfortunately not that common. And then, once you've absorbed that, you can go on to the rest of the books, which have the commandments, the mitzvot. Is this clear so far? Any questions? Feel free to, if there's no questions, I'm assuming you agree and understand whatever I said. Okay, great. Uh, next, Sefer HaYitzirah. It is also called the book of formation. As Nachmanides calls it, because it's the book not only of creation, but of formation. Creation only occupies the first nanosecond. Creation was the creation of something from nothing. The original space-time matter, right? But the rest of it is involved in taking that and forming it into something else, which actually is the purpose of the human being, to take the raw materials and to develop them into something better to improve the world, to improve ourselves. It is not, we disagree with Voltaire, uh, what he put in the mouth of the religious person in his play Candide. What did Voltaire put in the mouth of Dr. Pangloss? The best of all possible worlds, correct. Right, when I speak to college students today and I mention Voltaire, I get blank looks. I'm serious, unbelievable. It is very, uh, yeah. Anyway, so uh, it's good to see that there's a literary audience. It's great. Anyway, so, uh, you know, but if Voltaire maybe had a music video, it would probably help, but he doesn't. In any case, right, uh, so we don't believe that it's the best of all possible worlds. We believe it's the world designed to be made into the best of all possible worlds, but it's not there yet. Okay, so, so, so it is the book of formation because really God just created the initial, but the formation of it, into something beautiful, perfect, and better is up to the human being. Another name for it, there's a lot of names for it, is also called Sefer Avraham. The Talmud calls it the Book of Abraham because he was the beginning of the Jewish people and it talks about how, and he was the father of many nations and it was he who was the initial impulse or rather the first person to really bring monotheism and spread it out throughout the world. That was Abraham. And the last name for it, I promise, is Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant. Um, Rashi calls it that. Rashi, of course, one of the greatest commentators. I asked a kid at school, when did Rashi live? He told me during recess. No, during recess, he told me. I said, why do you say that? He said, because the teacher said he lived from 1040 to 1135. Right, so, uh, but uh, he lived from 1040 to 1135 in France. And he literally wrote comments on absolutely the entire Torah, five books of Moses, 24 books of the prophets and writings, two-thirds of the Midrash, the entire 21 volumes of the Talmud. He wrote commentaries on prayer. He wrote responsa. He wrote poems. He was the, uh, the, the chief rabbi of, not official, but basically the de facto chief rabbi of the Jews of France. He wrote responsa to Jews in Germany, uh, France, Israel, etc. He, um, uh, he adjudicated the courts. Jews and Gentiles came to him. And he was the official rabbi and educator of the place. So he was an overachiever, to say the least. Um, and uh, he calls it Sefer Habrit, which means the Book of the Covenant. The word bris, we usually use to refer specifically to circumcision, but actually the term bris, brit means covenant. It means an agreement between two parties, or sometimes more. But uh, it's the Book of the Covenant because if you look through Genesis, lots of covenants. There's a covenant, a promise between God and Adam and Eve. And there's another promise between God and Noah and his children. And there's another covenant between God and Abraham. And another one between God and Isaac and one between God and Jacob. So, so there's many, the, the formative covenants 
the relationship of the Jewish people with God, the relationship of God to the world, the relationship of the world and the Jews, the relationship of the Jews to the land of Israel, they're all what we call covenants. So the book which has virtually all the covenants in it is Genesis. Yes? Didn't God also Um, uh, did he call it a bris? I don't know. Yishmael did have a bris, in other words, in the sense of circumcision. No, but when they were leaving, um, didn't he say that he would keep them safe? Sure, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't remember if it uses the word bris or if it says promise, but it could be, yes, could be. So there's a lot of covenants in Genesis, and hence it is called the book. One of the names of it is the Book of the Covenant. So those are some of the names, the Book of Genesis. I believe you have it on your outlines as well. Um, the next is, here are some vital statistics. Here's what you're going to get, ESPN of Genesis, right? Uh, it's got um, parashiot. What is a parasha? Parasha is what we read every week on Shabbat. Now, I should point out that the um, parashiot are quite ancient, although reading the Torah over the course of one year was not the only custom. There were ancient customs. Some people read the Torah over the course of three years to the delight of Bamitzvah boys, right? Because it meant their, what they had to learn was about a third, you know, two thirds less, right? But it was read over the course of three years. However, there was a, a very famous uh, man by the name of Ezra. Ezra the scribe mentioned in the Bible. He is one, he was one of the leaders of the Jewish people in Babylon who was one of those who led the Jews back to Israel, the first exile, the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jews approximately 2,600 years ago, 2,500 years ago, uh, was by the Babylonians, and they exiled the Jews to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. 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 Correct. Right. So at most, the oldest Jewish community outside of Israel is probably Iraq. Very small today, but nevertheless, uh, that was the one of the oldest. And um, Ezra and Nehemiah, two leaders of the Jewish people, led many Jews back to Israel after that exile. Most Jews stayed in Babylon... Most stayed, but many went back with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuilt Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem, the temple. But Ezra did quite a few things. He is known as Ezra the scribe. Ezra Hasofer, the scribe. The reason he's called that is because he did so many things regarding the Torah itself. And he instituted the reading of the Torah on a regular basis, every Monday and every Thursday. And, of course, there was even more ancient custom was to read it every Sabbath. So actually, the Torah is read throughout the course of the year, and the parshas are the divisions of the Torah into the weekly portion. In, when I was a kid, we used to call it the Sidra. That's the more, and that's like, like not in fashion today, call it Sidra, but we used to call it the Sidra, but it's also called the Parsha. There's 12 of them, 12 in Genesis. We'll go through them. How many sentences? 1,534. By the way, I, I, the reason I have Ezra here is because the division into parshas is, is, dates back to the time of Ezra. The division into sentences, that dates back to Sinai when it was originally given, and there are 1,534 sentences. Um, Excuse me, are you referring to Genesis or to the Torah? Genesis, just Genesis, just Genesis. Their chapters are 50 chapters. When you look into a regular Bible, Jewish Bible or otherwise, you will find it divided into chapters. Those chapters are not of Jewish origin. They're actually of Christian origin. Uh, Jews adopted them out of convenience because the printers... Generally, printing presses in ancient times were in the hands of the ruling power, the ruling power of Christians, so they had the printing presses. So if they wanted to put chapters in, we didn't have much choice. So hence the chapters. So when you refer to something in the Bible, chapter 14, etc., actually not a Jewish division, you'll, it's very interesting because you'll find sometimes those chapters don't actually coincide with the context. 
you can see that sometimes whoever put the chapters in was not familiar with the Hebrew language in its original, etc. And this is indeed based on the Vulgate, which is, of course, an ancient Latin version of the Bible. The most ancient translation is known... uh, Well, there's there's two ancient translations. One is, you'll probably hear of the Septuagint. Septuagint, the... the, Well, yeah, done by the 70 elders. Septa is from the word seven, 70. And the tradition tells us that Ptolemy the Hellenistic ruler of Egypt wanted 70 rabbis to translate the Torah into Greek. So he brought 70 rabbis in. They couldn't really refuse. It was pre-Glasnost. And um, put them in separate cubicles. And they all translated it. The Talmud says, miraculously, they all translated it in exactly the same way. I heard a contemporary rabbi, Rabbi Hutner, ask the question. He says he doesn't understand why that's considered miraculous. They were in different rooms. Of course they agreed. Had they been in the same room and agreed, that would have been miraculous. But in any case, um, commandments in the book of Genesis, as I said before, there are seven plus three, possibly four. Uh, Seven refers to the seven, not commandments of the Jews, but seven what we call the Noahide laws, which are the seven basic moral laws of humanity, uh, which we'll see soon. Uh, There are three of the specifically Jewish commandments in the in Genesis, some say four. We'll see what those are soon. I'm just giving you the stats. The years covered in Genesis go from the year one, and you'll notice I have a little question mark of what's before one, because there is uh, there is discussion. There are Jew, there are traditional uh, in commentaries that say that um, one really only starts from the first human being with free will, Adam. There's not a. In other words, the fact that we today are in five seven six seven. Right, is 5767, or 8, sorry, 68, sorry, yes, sorry, just had Rosh Hashanah, didn't we? Right, thank you. Right, so uh, it it does not mean that the universe is 5768 years old. It means humans with a soul are that that old. But the universe conceivably could be older. There there was a Revitzak of Akko, a Kabbalist, student of Nachmanides, you may have heard of Nachmanides. Akko is otherwise known as Aker, right, right, in the north of Israel, Saint-Jean-Dakur, right, Joan of Arc, right, actually refers to Akko. And um, the, uh, this great sage made a calculation, and he made this calculation in the 13th century, that actually the six days of creation really refer to uh, 14.3 billion years, uh, which is type of interesting because current estimates are between 13 to 15. Very interesting. I'll t- I'll very briefly, what he said was that each of the six days, because the Sabbath is... Right, there was no creation taking place. Each of the six days is really, there's a Kabbalistic concept of cycles of what's called Shemitah. Shemitah means sabbatical year. Today, actually this year, the sabbatical year in Israel, every seven years. So he says, really, there are seven sabbatical cycles in those six. And each sabbatical cycle, though, is what we call the great cycle, which is a thousand, which is a 7,000 year cycle. So it's really 7,000 years times six. However, since the verse says in Psalms, that a day in your eyes is like a thousand years, we have to multiply them. The, so every year of God is 365,000 of our years, which means we multiply it out, you get to 14.3 billion. So anyway, that was the uh, Revitzak of Akko. Um, now, uh, so that's why I have, that's, I, I, that, all that is in that little parentheses with a question mark. So, you know, just, you should, I expected you to figure it out from that, but I've just told you anyway, because I'm in a generous mood. Okay, so, um, uh, so it goes from there till the Jewish year 2309, or 1452 BCE. Uh, just interesting coincidence, Abraham, the Jewish year in which Abraham was born, anyone know? The Jewish year in which Abraham was born. 
1948. This type of acute coincidence. Yeah, 1948 years from Adam was the birth of Abraham. Rashi makes that calculation. Rashi made the calculation well before establishment of the state of Israel. Right? Um, so anyway, so it actually, and the purity cup is from the creation to the Isidus. That's not a misprint. All right, Exodus is leaving Egypt. Isidus is? Entering Egypt, right? So that's the that's the technical term which you won't hear anywhere else except for here, right? Um, so, but in any case, that's the term used, and it goes to the passing of Joseph, who was the uh, the, the uh, son of Jacob and the uh, leader of Egypt, just under Pharaoh. That's the end of. So Genesis basically goes from Big Bang or whatever you want to call it, right, until the um, till the Jews enter Egypt and the passing of Jacob and of of Joseph. Now, the Parshiot. The first is Bereshit. Parsha is called Bereshit, and that covers creation, Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel. Um, obviously, the, uh, it, it runs very quickly because uh, there's a lot of period covered there, but the creation, the idea of creation is to teach us that there is an origin to the world, that there's a purpose to the world, that it was created by an intelligent being with a plan for it. So creation implies purpose, and um, intelligence implies purpose, and it is our uh, central to our understanding of the world that there is God has a purpose in doing it. It's not random. It's not. It's not. It was not a series of unfortunate events or fortunate events, whatever fortuitous, uh, you know, coincidences. Um, one of multiple parallel universes, one of which just happened to have intelligent life. We believe that it's actually was created. That's the central idea of creation, and that's of course the first uh, idea is mentioned as Shabbat, the Sabbath which is a reminder of that. That's, so to speak, keeping a Sabbath is a testimony to that idea. Um, and, uh, yeah? Why are there two stories of creation? Well, there are actually, um, the two stories of creation uh, are not contradictory stories. Uh, one tells the story in, in terms of uh, leading up to the human being, and the other tells it relative to the human being. In other words, the first one refers to the human as part of nature, because we have a dual component to the human being. We are part of the natural world. We are a creation and a creature of the natural world. We are part of the ecosystem, etc. But there's a se- that's the first story. The second part, the second time it's related, refers to the human being in terms of the human's role in the world as the steward, master of the world, which is quite different. It talks about the human working the world, praying, so on and so forth. So there's, so it's referring to the dual component map, what Rav Soloveitcher calls Adam A and Adam B. Okay, that's the basic idea. Right, uh, we have in that very first story of creation, God tells the first thing that God ever tells to a human being. What's the first thing God says to Adam and Eve? Don't eat? Right, interesting. Uh, it, it, that's not exact. In other words, and I think it's a very interesting, a lot of people think that. But the actual statement, the first statement that God made was, eat, eat, no, eat from all the trees, just don't eat from that one. Very interesting. He didn't start out by saying, don't touch that tree. He started out by saying, eat and enjoy all these trees. Just not that. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Educationally speaking, it's interesting because a lot of times, people's understanding and impression of things is don't, 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 where really a lot of it is do, 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 and that's very... Okay, but in any case, um, and of course we have the whole concept of free will, uh, the concept of uh, human free will, the concept of human perception of good and evil, 
um, the, the, the effect of sin on the human being where evil becomes part of reality as opposed to beforehand where it was considered to be almost like an illusory, an illusory idea. Humans absorb it into themselves and now it becomes part of our reality and we have to struggle a lot harder. And uh, of course the second thing, yes, God does tell Adam and Eve uh, the first mitzvah, first of the 613 commandments chronologically, which is, someone mentioned, procreation, have children, be fruitful and multiply. Very interesting and radical contrast. If you read uh, most of the pagan literature of the time uh, in terms of creation stories, one of the things that you'll see in common is the gods felt a little threatened by the people, uh, by humans. Uh, humans were stealing stuff from them, making too much noise, whatever, etc., etc. Uh, you'd never find in the pagan ideas that the gods would encourage people to not be fruitful and multiply. Uh, however, the Jewish, when we talk about God, God is above and beyond space and time. He's not threatened by us. He does, the downstairs neighbors not bother him. On the contrary, he created it so that we can populate the world. And yeah. It's a difficult question. You may not be able to answer. I was just wondering if there is a religious answer. If this is a knowledgeable uh, and loving God, uh, and this is the, truly the tree of knowledge, not the tree of sin, why would God not want humans to be knowledgeable? It's an excellent question. Maimonides was asked that in the very beginning of Guide for the Perplexed, but in a slightly different format. right? Because God certainly wants a human to be knowledgeable. He certainly does. But And it's a, it's a little bit of a mistranslation because we don't look at it in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew is Eitz Hadat Tov Vera. Now, Da'at is translated as knowledge, but actually in Genesis, Da'at is used in a little bit of a different way. Uh, the word Da'at, knowledge, is also used to mean joining together. We are told Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant. So it wasn't by saying, hi, my name is Adam, what's your name? Right? It was not like he knew his wife. Knowing is, 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 joining, is joining together. right? And so this was actually the, we talk about that tree, it was the tree that put good and evil in the same sphere. Meaning, beforehand, good and evil was looked at in the way, same way we look at as a true-false concept. Meaning, if I ask you, 1 plus 1 equals 2, true or false? True. 1 plus 1 equals 3? False. You wouldn't describe... 1 plus 1 equals 3 is evil, 1 plus 1 equals 2 is good, right? If I asked you, um, if I asked you, uh, stealing, true or false, you'd probably tell me, well, it's, 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 it's evil, it's not true or false, it's evil, you shouldn't do it. But you see, before they ate, right, for them, evil was something which was false. They looked at it as true, false. It wasn't part of the sphere of reality. By transgressing God's will, transgressing God's will, now we had tasted it, and now evil had become part of our reality system. Now when I ask you stealing, good and good or bad, and I ask you about stealing, you don't look at theft as not real, not possible. You look at theft as possible, but I won't do it. Very, very, very brief answer to a very, very long question. Right? Um, but uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I don't know if anyone here has been in the army. Anyone been in the army here? Yes. Two. So, me too. Right? I was, in, I was in the Israeli army. Okay. So, so uh, in the army, and the, I guess in the navy as well, depends on what you you learn how to kill people. That's basically, right? You are studying how to kill people in the most efficient manner. Um, and uh, if you unfortunately have to kill someone, it changes you, right? Killing see, for 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 most of us, and you don't have to tell me if you kill anyone, but but most of us, I think, um, we look at murder. We haven't tasted from the fruit of the tree of knowledge when it comes to murder, have we? It's not really a reality for us. 
It's, it's not really a reality for us. It's the type of thing which we don't look at as, as real. We look at it as evil, yes, but if, you know, it's not something I think about. <laughs> I don't contemplate murder, right? On the other hand, ha- had you ever, God forbid, had to kill someone, even if it was justified, right, you would now have tasted from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Murder now is real. You might not do it. You'll say it's a terrible thing, but it's, it's part of your reality now. That's a little bit of an introduction to what, what we mean by that. Um, if we get into the deep philosophy stuff, we're never going to finish, right? But, yeah. There's, but there's a distinct difference between murder and killing. Oh, I agree with Especially you. In the, in I was just being sloppy with the terminology, but, but I agree with you. But even if the killing you did is not murder, in other words, even if it was justified killing, not murder, but it's still become part of your reality. You understand? It's still become part of So you're right. It, you're right, it's not murder, but it's still part of your reality. Okay. All right. So that's then we have Adam and Eve, and of course we have Cain and Abel, who, in their own way, Cain eats of the tree of knowledge. He's the first murderer, and that murder was based on some say jealousy. Uh, some say it was it was uh, you know the desire that he he didn't want to share the world. Uh, not clear cut, but that's Cain and Abel. And we of course we have the replacement of Noah, who is called Shase, Shase, Seth, in English. But Shase in Hebrew, actually Shase in Hebrew means replacement. He was a replacement for Abel. Interesting to note, the word Cain and Abel, Cain in Hebrew, it's Cain and Hevel. Cain means acquisition. Right? And Hevel means nothingness. It's type of interesting, they both were eliminated from the pool. You know what I'm saying? Why? See, Hevel was an extreme of humility, but humility can be carried to a negative extreme. He looked at himself as nothing, and when Cain brought a sacrifice, what does it say? Hevel also brought. He was an also person. He wasn't someone who tried to make his own imprint on the world. He was, I'm a nothing. Like, what am I, nothing? Right? That's not a good thing. The opposite extreme, though, is Cain, who is acquisition, meaning it's mine. I decide to kill you. You're in my way. I'll get you out of my way, whatever, whatever it takes, so to speak. Negative as well. So those two negatives were extremes, and they're replaced by Chase, who is hopefully more balanced. Then we have Noah, the generation of Noah, who's ten generations after Adam. And the generation of Noah and the flood is a uh, tragic situation. God has decided to close down the business. And Noah, who is righteous, and his wife and his children, and his three sons and their wives are saved from the, from the flood in the ark. It's a very, very interesting story. Um, it, it appears from the Torah, and this is very, very interesting, that the main uh, sin, what was the main sin of the generation of the flood? What was their primary sin? What did they commit? wasn't idolatry, interestingly enough. It was actually, it says that their, that their fate was sealed based on the sin of theft. Theft. And sexual immorality. Uh, very, very interesting. In other words, the way this is understood by one of our great sages, the Maharal, Rabbi Lerva of Prague, he understands that what that means is they lacked boundaries. They No boundaries. So that means property. There was no respect for property. And there was also no, there was also no boundaries in terms of their morality, sexuality. There's, there's got to be boundaries there. So there was no boundaries. So what is a substance that doesn't really have boundaries, doesn't have a shape? Water. So, the, so to speak, the people um, destroyed their own form, i.e., they said, "We have no any vessel you pour me in, I'll take on that shape." There's no boundaries whatsoever, right? So God, so to speak, removed 
the boundaries and the water turned everything back. The word mabul, strictly speaking, doesn't mean flood. Mabul means that which, which destroys something's form and turns it back just to matter. Right? From matter and form. Okay? Like clay, you form it, that's called, that's form. If you destroy the format and just turn it back into a lump, that's called matter. What water, what the flood did is it turned the world from formation back to just matter. Why? Because what people did to themselves was the same thing. Humans have to have a form. What do I mean by form? There's got to be boundaries. It has to be bound. Morality, ethics, property, sexuality, all these things need boundaries. Humans just didn't have that. Noah is in the, in the ark. It's interesting because the word ark, teva, actually means a box. It also means a word, right? It is, so to speak, he's put into this little boundary, so to speak. Right, and uh, the the word, which later on the word of Torah becomes the, so to speak, our ark in a world which very often has not had boundaries. So Noah and his family are saved from the flood. There is the um, he has three sons: Shame, Ham, and Yafet. Interesting names. Shame means name. Ham means warmth. Yafet means beauty. So the three sons, who are the ancestors traditionally of all of humanity. There's beauty, warmth, and name. What does that mean? Symbolism of those, shame, name, means the idea of uh, of essence of things. The name connotes the essence. So the one who's able to see into the essence, the one, there are, there are, there are peoples, one capacity of peoples is to look at things, not from the external, but to look through things into their essence. To see things as they really are on the spiritual level, not just on the physical level. That's what shame symbolizes, name. Cham means warmth. What does it refer to? Passion, emotion, uh, perhaps music in these areas. Passion and emotion, Cham. And then there's a third, which is yefet, which is beauty. Interestingly enough, the Greeks traditionally we uh, are descended from uh, from yefet. From the, right? There's the idea of Right, beauty as as the who is it was it Yates on the uh, Greek urn. Beauty is truth. Truth is was it Keats? Was it Keats? Sorry. So Keats on the Greek urn, right? Beauty is truth. Truth is right. So so um, the Greeks very much into the idea of beauty. Um, shame. Uh, the Semites, the Jewish people, are descended from from shame amongst others, right? And uh, so we have we have the warmth and passion, and we have. Um, beauty and we have uh, shame essence. So that's the descendants of Noah and of course in that parasha are some of the Noahide laws which we'll look at in more detail later. Then we have Lech Lecha which is the first word that God says to the first Jew which is go to Israel. Right? Go to Lech Lecha go for yourself to the land of Israel. Abraham and Sarah go to Israel uh, in that uh, that is where uh, also God gives Abraham of course um, commandments there um, uh, in Vayera, the next parsha gives him the commandment of circumcision, circumcise himself and his children. Um, he has a, his two sons, Isaac and Yishmael. Isaac is chosen, as the Torah puts it, Yitzchak Yikare Lacha Zera. Your child, your seed, shall be known through Isaac. Um, and uh, God commands Abraham. We have a very interesting. Uh, that's the destruction of Sodom is, is there, and Abraham prays for Sodom. Uh, we have the binding of Isaac, the very famous case where God tells Abraham to take Isaac, offer him as a sacrifice 
on a mountain, Mount Moriah. Abraham's prepared to do that. By the way, so is Isaac. Uh, contrary to popular belief, Isaac was either, some commentaries say he was 13, some say he was 16, most say he was 37. Which means it was not as Rembrandt's picture of Abraham and Isaac, where he's like a little kid and Abraham's overpowering him, but rather it was also voluntary on the side of Isaac. Very, very interesting incident. It shows Abraham's total faith in God. Here is something he didn't understand, but he has, but it's not unreasonable faith. Because he has had already a lifetime of experience of God's benevolence and kindness and wisdom. So now at the very end of his life, this is the test, the final test, so to speak. It's not, it's not, God deliberately does not give it to him at the beginning of his life because it's not fair. You can't expect a person at that point. Once he's had a lifetime of experience with God, now God tells him something which he totally does not understand. But you know what? He trusts him. In the same way as a child will trust their parents, even though they don't necessarily understand everything. But they, if they sense there is love there, they'll trust you, even if they didn't understand it. Yes? I was just going to mention that the Arabs uh, attribute this story exact opposite and say that Ishmael was the one that was bound yeah, sure. and uh, put up the sacrifice. Right. The Quran, of course, was not written until about 600 CE. Uh, which means the Torah had been around for many years beforehand. But yeah, they claim that we, we messed around with the uh, manuscripts, which was ludicrous. But nevertheless, that's their claim. Yeah. Um, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, this week's Torah portion. We're reading it this, this Saturday. Uh, that describes the passing of Sarah, the first Jewish burial. Um, Abraham buys the first, per- one of the earliest ever purchases of land ever described. Uh, Abraham buys Hebron or the, the cave of the Machpelah in Hebron for an exorbitant price, 400 shekel. How do I know it's exorbitant? Because the Code of Hammurabi, which was at the same time, around that time, says that the average worker earned five to seven shekel a year. So he's paying 400 shekel for a cave. You know, this could have been Manhattan for heaven's sakes right so um, so that's a lot of money and he bought the cave there and that's where he buried uh, uh, Sarah and that is where the next generation starts Isaac uh, a wife is found for Isaac her name is Rivka Rebecca she is now the uh, the, the matriarch the, the replacement for Sarah so so to speak Sarah hears that Isaac was willing to do this to offer himself as an offering and she hears that Rivka has been born so to speak, her death, as the Talmud describes it, was the death of what's called the kiss of God, meaning that she had achieved everything she needed to achieve in life. She achieved everything she had ever wanted to achieve. And at that point, she decided, so to speak, that uh, it was over. And uh, it's very, very interesting the way that it is described. So that is Chaye Sarah. And then we have Toldot which is in two weeks, my bar mitzvah, parasha, uh, in which we have the birth of Jacob and Esau, the, the, the twins. Um, uh, Esau, the Macaulay Culkin of the Bible, uh, the evil brother. Um, uh, Esau and Jacob. Um, Esau was the cunning hunter, although it's interesting that he wasn't born evil. He had, he had skills. He had skills of cunning he had skills in areas of politics. He had skills in areas of the military. He was a skilled hunter. Right, That didn't automatically mean he was bad. On the contrary, his father Isaac wanted to give him a blessing. And he actually wanted to give him... The, because he felt Isaac felt that Jacob was too otherworldly to spread monotheism. How's Jacob going to survive in a rough and tumble world? So, ja- so Isaac felt, you need... An, who do we need? We need an Esau. Esau's descendants traditionally became the Roman Empire. So he thought... Rivka knew better. His wife Rivka knew better. She knew that Esau would not 
would not be someone who would spread monotheism. He'd rather spread taxation, right? Uh, without representation. And uh, that's what he would do. And so therefore, uh, she engineered that the blessing would go to, to, to Jacob. What's interesting is that when Jacob comes to, uh, to Isaac for his blessing, it's, he's disguised. Isaac can't see. And it's, I'll tell you, it's a fascinating verse. It says this, And he asked, Who are you? And Jacob said, I am Esau. And then it says this, Isaac says, The voice is the voice of Jacob. But the hands are the hands of Esau, and he blessed him. What does that mean, folks? Just very briefly, I have to tell you, because it's such a beautiful concept. The idea means is the following. He didn't know who it was. But he said, you know what? Whoever this is, this is the one I want. Because if he's got the hands of Esau, what's the hands of Esau mean? He needs, he can, he can be tough when he needs to be. He can be a hunter. He can do politics. He can do military, economics, etc. But he's got the voice of Jacob, meaning it's the voice of Torah, the voice of monotheism, the voice of ethics. So whoever this hybrid is, he gets the blessing. Whether it's Esau who's acquired the voice of Jacob or Jacob who's acquired the hands of Esau, I don't care. Right? I'm giving him the blessing because that's who I need. Very, very interesting. Yes? Can you explain shortly, briefly, how it is that the secondborn is always the blessed? Fascinating, yes. It's an interesting pattern. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch points out throughout the Bible you find that very, very often it's not the firstborn is the one who's meant to be the bee's knees, the ant's pants, right? And yet the firstborn is very often, it's an Australian expression, whatever. Anyway, but the, it's, um, but the, uh, but the, uh, very often he's replaced by someone else. King David is the youngest in the family. Isaac replaces Esau, right? Joseph and so, it's, it's very, very common. He says, you know why he says? To teach us an important lesson. Being born with greater gifts being born with a silver spoon being born with a greater potential does not mean a darn thing if you pervert it or don't use it that's the lesson he says and he says you see it the Torah wants to imprint upon us again and again that it's not the situation of your birth that makes you great it is what you do with it it is your free will and consequently we find firstborns right who very often mess up totally they had the opportunity they had the potential etc but they didn't, they didn't achieve anything. So that's the lesson that it teaches us. So that is the book of the, the parasha of Toldot. Next we have Vayetze. He went forth. Jacob, after having taken the blessings deceitfully from his brother Esau, now goes out of Israel. He goes into exile to the house of Lavan, his uncle. Right? And he marries there Rachel and Leah, the two sisters, daughters of Lavan. By the, just pointing out, the Torah had not yet been given, so this was not prohibited by, by law at that point. Later on, it was prohibited. Some say that although the patriarchs understood the spiritual laws of the Torah, which were given later, they saw it in nature. However, they, they, it was nebulous. No, it was not, it was not a legal system. It was something that which was, which, what they felt inspired to do at a particular time and place, that's what they would do. Most of the time, it coincided with the laws that happened later. Not, not necessarily always. This particular case, it didn't. So, and they have 12 children between them. They also, I should not leave out Bilha and Zilpah, the maidservants of Rachel and Leah. Uh, I don't think it was feasible. People at the time did not bear lots of children and survive. Uh, so he had four wives and he had the destiny of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And those 12 tribes, of course, we know the building blocks of the Jewish people. Um, with the young, the birth of the youngest, Binyamin, Benjamin, his mother Rachel dies at childbirth. She is, be- and he buried her on the way into Israel, uh, in a place called, right on the road to Beit Lechem. In English, Bethlehem. Um, Beit Lechem is where the tomb of Rachel is. Everyone else, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, are all buried in Hebron. Uh, tradition tells us why is she buried there. She's buried there because that's the path that the Jews took when they were exiled by the Babylonians out of Israel. And, and, and divine providence wanted her grave to be there because Rachel cries for her children. Very famous and beautiful verse in Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, a voice of crying and wailing. It is Rachel crying for her children. She refuses to be comforted because her children are not in their land. And God says to her, stop your voice from crying and dry the tears from your eyes because there is reward for your action and there is hope for your end. The children shall return to their borders. The Shavu Banim Ligvulam, very beautiful prophecy Jeremiah tells, is speaking to our mother, Rachel, Mama Rachel, right, and uh, telling her that her, her prayers will be answered. Then we have Vayishlach, Jacob and Esau meet again, and this time, to a certain degree, there seems to be, at least superficially, a, a detente between them. Um, unclear if they are totally made up, uh, but there seems to be a detente. He returns to Israel and settles back down in the land of Israel, which is where he should be. Uh, we have Vayeshev, the, uh, talks about the 12 tribes and the various um, aspects of their life, and of course the terrible split between the 12 tribes, the 11 brothers and Joseph, and their jealousy for Joseph and their hatred for him. Joseph was nurtured by the father to be a ruler, to be a leader. The brothers, um, interestingly enough, were very resentful of this, uh, I don't think it was just uh, the fact that they were jealous of his coat. I mean, that's like seems a little silly. You know what I mean? Uh, I expect much more of people who God spoke to uh, than being jealous of someone's coat, right? But rather, some some understand it as being they were they were resentful of the whole idea of monarchy. They said that's not what the Jewish people are about. We shouldn't become just like another another nation. Some with some brutal dictator. You know, you look at the kings that they had experienced until that time. Who were they? Nimrod. Chucked Abraham in the firmness, right? Uh, Avimelech, king of the Philistines, kidnapped their mother, grandmother. Uh, Pharaoh, right? Uh, none of these people were very exemplary, uh, you know, uh, ideals of ethics. So they said Joseph's dreams of, of royalty are uh, not what the Jewish people are about. Every, everyone needs to be, you know, we need to have a more loose alliance, etc., he was wrong, they were right. He was right, they were wrong. And they were shown to be wrong later on. They sell him into slavery. And of course, the Talmud says that is the origin of all of these sins between us and, other, and others. The sins between one person and another all have their origin, so to speak, in that sin of, of the sale of Joseph, so to speak. That's where That was our greatest failing. And, and that produced within us a lack of unity which we still experience today. And it will only be when that unity is healed, that lack of unity is healed, that we can experience uh, redemption. Um, but uh, Kabbalists say that's where it all goes back to, that lack of unity in the tribes. Interesting. And then we have Miketz, Joseph's ascent to power in Egypt, Judea's interpretation of dreams. A lot of Joseph is about dreams. Maimonides says dreams are necessary because dreams work in the imagination. And he says, unless you can imagine the ideal, and where you want to work to, you're not going to be able to get there. 
So he says that's what the dreams are about a little bit. That's why also dreams are like prophecy in a sense, a little bit of prophecy, a 60th of prophecy in dreams. And Joseph's dreams and Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh at these seven years of famine and so on and so forth. And of course, the brothers come down to Egypt to purchase food because Egypt was the breadbasket and literally the breadbasket. I was just reading, there's an interesting book written by an anthropologist about uh, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, 60 years ago called 6,000 Years of Bread. He maintains that actually leavened bread was invented in Egypt. It was an Egyptian invention, which, by the way, might throw a little bit of light on why we avoid it over Pesach. Right? We eat matzah. That's explicit in the Torah. It tells why do we eat matzah? Because we, we, you know, we, we, you know, the dough out and so on and so forth. But it doesn't really say in the Torah why do we? It just says don't have leavened bread. Right? This throws an interesting light on maybe why we avoid it. If it was an Egyptian invention and it was the upper class food of the Egyptians, right? Then we understand why we're avoiding it during that week. That, possible. Don't know. Just a conjecture. Uh, the brothers are in Egypt. We have the story of the brothers uh, and uh, reuniting with Joseph after a lot of tribulation, which Joseph seems to cause, because Joseph wants to test them to see if they've really regretted what they did. And there is a very, very beautiful meeting of them. They cry. Joseph cries, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's it's the Kabbalists say a bit of a hint of what will be in future. That here we are split apart. Joseph, the brothers. Egypt, Canaan, so to speak, is a certain time in the future the Jewish people will come together, will cry on each other's shoulders, and we will make, make shalom, make peace with each other. And only when there's peace with each other can we have peace in general. And we have the last parasha, which is Vayechi, Jacob, in Egypt, the Jewish people entering Egypt, so to speak, the beginning of exile. And thus ends the book of Genesis. Um, what are some of the themes? The main themes, I say, are, of course, creation, sin and free will, reward and punishment. Uh, you'll notice these are some of the major principles of Jewish belief. Creation, the existence of God, free will, uh, reward and punishment. We actually have a few, a recreation, which is Noah, he's like the new Adam. We have a, the seven Noahide laws, which were given to him. And then we have another recreation with Abraham. There's been really three creations, the way that commentaries look at it. There was the original creation, and then there was laws given to Adam and Eve, and they messed up. Then there was a second creation, the new Adam and Eve, so to speak, Noah, his children, and they were given laws as well. And there was a lot of corruption, and they messed up in, in, other, in many ways, the Tower of Babel, and so on and so forth. And then we have recreation with Abraham, the new Adam as well, the next new Adam, so to speak. A few levels of creation uh, each time there's a covenant of circumstance interesting god tells abraham i'm going to give your children the land of israel and you know the two things that god mentions in his kind in his covenant to abraham two things circumcision and kindness so kindness to others very very central very central part of the covenant uh with uh, with abraham um, formation of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, and the continuation of the Jewish people in the 12 tribes. So that's basically the themes of the book of Genesis. What are, these are the Noahide laws. Noahide laws, seven of them. They are prohibitions against idolatry. So worship. this is the part of the Ten Commandments? No. no. Nope. This is independent of the Ten Commandments. This, is, uh, this was before then. Oh. Some of these appear again in the Ten Commandments, Yes. But these are predate them and they go back to Genesis 9. The prohibition against idolatry and blasphemy, murder, 
sexual immorality, theft, and eating from a living creature. I should point out, each of these is really a category which includes under it many, many other laws. So the commentaries tell us that under sexual morality is included adultery and incest and so on and so forth. And rape under murder is included uh, damaging someone, hurting someone humiliating someone. Under idolatry and blasphemy are included many prohibitions. Under theft, laws of business ethics, honesty, and so on and so forth. So they're not just seven laws. You can't have a world functioning with seven laws. That's ridiculous, right? You go to any law library. Right? These are categories. And number the last one, number seven, is the... Oh, eating from a living creature was, it's telling us that the animals, although we can harvest the animals, so to speak, after, after Adam and Eve were not allowed to kill animals. They only ate either from fruit and vegetables or from an animal which is already dead. Noah was allowed to now kill animals. However, what was told to him is that you cannot treat them like plants. You can't pull off a limb from an animal, pull off flesh of an animal and eat it. The animals have to be killed in an appropriate fashion beforehand and only then can you eat them. Unfortunately, there are still countries where people eat living animals from living animals. I won't go into the details because it's really disgusting but but people do that and uh, I haven't seen it but I've seen evidence of it uh, when I was in Hong Kong but in any case um, uh, it is the idea of don't treat them they're not automatons they have feelings they have they feel pain they have emotional pain and we have to have that care even though we're allowed to eat them we have to have sensitivity that's about it and then finally the obligation to set up and maintain a justice system that is to say the Noahide laws meaning every every person in the world Jew and non-Jew is obligated by these. Jews have additional obligations. But at the very minimum, there's seven... Why seven? Because seven parallels the days of creation. The idea of seven is don't destroy the order of the world. Don't destroy the natural order. There's a natural order of morality in the world, God created. So the seven is don't destroy those seven days by transgressing the seven crimes. So that's the basic idea. This is clear so far. It's the seven Noahide laws. Then we have the mitzvot. What are the mitzvot in, in Genesis? I mentioned three, possibly four. Procreation, given to Adam and Eve. Have children. Uh, Talmud says minimum of two, boy and a girl. Not necessarily under your control, uh, but at least the person has to attempt uh, to have uh, children. Um, and um, Circumcision, given to Abraham and his descendants. Repeated later on in the Torah, I should point out. On the eighth day, by the way, why is it on the eighth day? Well, if seven symbolizes the natural world, what does eight symbolizes? symbolize? Going beyond nature. Going one step beyond. Meaning, don't just accept the world as it is, but improve it and change it, perfect it. Circumcision, symbolically, of that is the eighth commandment given to us. Because we had seven nullified laws. Commandment number eight, circumcision. And then it's done, and it's done on the eighth day, that symbolism. Why is circumcision order? What is the reason for that? Interesting. Um, a few reasons. One idea is to, it is, it's creation of a covenant by, um, by the covenant that God makes with Abraham is, is your descendants are going to be people who are supposed to improve the world. Do not take the world as it is. Don't just guard what there is, but go on and improve it. So therefore, the removal of the foreskin, so to speak, is a, is a, is symbolizes, um, taking, um, the world and changing it. In a con, on a continu, in the very organ which symbolizes continuity, which symbolizes eternity, uh, is changed, improved upon, so to speak, in order to show what we're supposed to do for all generations. So that's only the male that uh, participates in that, not the female. 
That is correct, yes. Um, it's interesting to note, though, you know, in, in Grace After Meals that we say, men and women say, right? We say, on the covenant that you've made in our flesh. Now, women say that as well. Why do women say that as well? The answer is because we are part of the same unit. So uh, we look at it as a male and female, ideally a part of the same unit. And so that, uh, so therefore, a woman also says, in our flesh. So uh, my guess also is that in as much as the woman gives the child to circumcision, it is probably as painful as for the child to get circumcised. So, it's uh, only the male child, it's not correct. the female child. So if you're interested, I can't give you yeah, a true. religious reason, but certainly from a medical standpoint, it, it, and just simply, it is infinitely more healthy. And I can elaborate on that. If you oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. But, but, but that's thing, not the reason the Torah gives for it, right? You know, the, yeah, but my, you're, you're my idea is that some wise people came up with this idea. There, up until recently, where there's much more of a mixture of groups, uh, Jewish women almost never, you could almost say never, had cancer of the cervix. And secondly, they're now discovering in Africa that there is much less AIDS, a transmission right. of HIV mm. in circumcised Yeah, men. that's true. Right, I, I don't know if we could say that's, that's certainly a side benefit, right? Although we see it as a, as, as a covenant between God and the Jewish people to make a sign of, of difference in the very flesh. Yeah. Uh, when God uh, told him to sacrifice his son, wasn't circumcised, the foreskin supposed to be in, in place of his son? So that he didn't have to really kill his son. He gave no, no, because that no can't be because the the obligation of circumcision was before that came well before that. Yeah, yeah. Isaac was already thirty-seven. He was circumcised when he was eight days old, so it was well before that. No. Um, then we have okay. Then we have the one that I have in parentheses because it's unclear whether it's given as a command. Oh, I, I, sorry, I skipped one. Sciatic nerve. As you know, um, the angel. There's an there's a story of the angel uh, fighting Jacob. And the angel touches him on what's called Gid Hanasha. That's always translated as the sinew of the thigh. Rubbish. Not a sinew, and it's not the thigh. It is a sciatic nerve that was touched. That's the traditionally what, we, what it is. And the sciatic nerve, uh, which is the two huge nerves, branches out from the spine, right, uh, down through the gluteus maximus through the thighs, the sciatic nerve. Very painful if anyone has had sciatica. But, uh, but the angel, so to speak, hurts him on the sciatic nerve. And since that time, the Torah commands us that on the animals, animals, we don't eat the sciatic nerve of an animal. So we, when Jews, uh, when we slaughter an animal, we also remove the sciatic nerve. Usually in the United States, since there's a large non-Jewish market, it is cheaper, more economical to cut the whole back of the animal off and sell it to the non-kosher abattoirs rather than to highest people, experts, to take out the sciatic nerve. You know, it's like doing like this post-mortem operation on the animal, something which you need a lot of hindsight for. Sorry about that. Right, but, um, but it's just more economical. I could not resist that one. It's more economical. Just, that's why it's not so common to find kosher rump steaks. You can get them. It's just that it's more expensive because it's just cheaper for us to, to cut the whole back off. But we don't eat the sciatic nerve. You're saying then that the prohibition is not to prevent eating the lower area, it's just that you must have the sciatic nerve. That's right, it's because of the historic symbolism. Jacob, Jacob struggles with the angel. The idea, symbolism of that is, sciatic, the nerve controls the muscles, right? That's in where the control... In the, in the leg. Yes, that nerve controls muscle and leg. The leg always, the thigh in, in the Torah is always symbolic of strength, right? God does not desire the thigh. Lobeshoke ha'ish yurtzeh. 
right? Not with the thigh of a man. So it's it, the angel is described. That angel is described as the forces of anti-Semitism, which touched Jacob in the nerve. In the nerve, the sciatic nerve. What does that mean? It means one of the things the anti-Semites have tried to do throughout the centuries have been to tr- take away our control of our own physical circumstances, put us in ghettos, take away our army, destroy our land, exile us, so on and so. Control what income we can have, control that, so on and so forth. We remember that, right? We remember that. We don't eat the sciatic nerve of the animal. When did Jacob? When was he healed? If you look in the Talmud, the Torah, the Torah says he's healed when the sun. When the sun rose, he stopped limping. Right? We believe that is symbolic of the redemption, the messianic time, when slowly, slowly, as we are experiencing, the Jews have got back control of various components of their physical life. We've got our land back, right? And we have an army and we have a government and so on and so forth. Slowly, the dawn rises. Jacob is limping less and less. Now, in addition, I have precedents, meaning there are precedents, not commandments, but precedents. The three prayers that we have on a daily basis, morning, afternoon, evening, are based on the fact that we find Abraham gets up early in the morning to pray for Sodom. He is the precedent for Shacharis, morning service. It says that Isaac goes out in the afternoon to converse in the field. It doesn't say with whom he is conversing. So that is a reference to afternoon service. He went out to converse with God. And Jacob, who was the one who went into exile, prays to God as he goes into exile in the evening at night, which is symbolic of exile. And he is the uh, precursor, so to speak, of the evening service. And of course, we have an additional service on every uh, festive occasion called Musaf, which means additional, which, by the way, the word Yosef means additional. And he is the ancestor, so to speak, the precedent of the additional service. Um, Just that, yes. Charity, I missed it. Did I miss it? Yeah. I did, I'm sorry. Yeah, I put it in parentheses because it's unclear whether, because it is repeated later on in the Torah. But in Genesis, Jacob says to God, everything I have, aser asrenu lach, I will take 10% and give to you. And this is the origin of the Jewish custom to give 10% of our income to charity. And um, so uh, the origin is back to Jacob, who gave 10%, who says to God, I'll give 10% charity. In biblical times, uh, you would give of your agricultural crops t- called tithes. But the word tithe, from the idea of 10, uh, and today is still a custom, dating back thousands of years, to give 10% of our income to charity. And that comes from, from Jacob originally. It's in parentheses here because it's not clear that it's a mitzvah, a commandment technically. It might be a custom, ancient, I mean really ancient, but a custom nonetheless. Okay. Sorry about that. So this is the first... Uh, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about the first sentence. If you have another 10 minutes, folks, you okay with this? Okay. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I first of all should point out that um, uh, many, uh, there's actually a pause after the word in the beginning, God created. I put a, um, a semicolon there. How do I know that? Because there's tunes with which the Torah is sung. And the tunes indicate the, the punctuation. So actually, the way it's sung, Bereshit Barai Elohim, under the word Elohim, in the beginning God created, under the word Elohim, the third word there, there's a, a tune called Etnachta, which, which is the equivalent of a semicolon. Now, a semicolon means that the first, the phrase before the semicolon has to be able to stand by itself. But it doesn't stand by itself. Does it? How does it, in the beginning God created, how does that stand by itself? So it depends how you read it. Some translate it, and the Gaon of Vilna translates this, where he says, you know what it means? God created beginnings. 
because he created time. Time is not, time is a creation. It's a component of the physical universe. He created space-time. So really, the first phrase is, God created space-time, or time-space. Right? Uh, now it says, it has what does the heaven and earth mean? I'll tell you what Nachmanides says, it does not mean the sky and the planet. That's what it does not mean. What it means is, the physical world, Aretz, earth, means the physical world. That means the entire universe. Alpha Centauri, the Milky Way, the whole thing. And Are- and Shamayim means the spiritual world. Because the word Aretz has within it two Hebrew words. Rutz, which means Rutz means to run. And Rutzon means to want. Aretz, the physical universe, is where we run to pursue our wants. What we want. Now, let me ask you something. If I were to ask you, where is someone running? Every single person on the earth who's ever running anywhere, where there's a one-word answer to where they're running. Away. Not necessarily away. Oh. More correctly, there. Okay? doesn't matter where you're going. You're going there, correct? Right. What's the Hebrew word for there? Sham. What's the plural of there? Shamayim. Heaven. Right, meaning that this is the physical world, is the world where we run to pursue what we want, our desires. But ultimately, it's all going to end up in the place where all the theirs are, which is the spiritual. Now, the Torah starts with a letter bait. That's interesting because intuitively, most of us would have thought, what would be more symbolic for the way the Torah starts? Should have started with the letter Aleph, right? But it starts with the letter bait. Why start with bait? The answer, so this is the answer. See, the bait, this is a bait. Right, you'll notice... Uh, so that the Yerushalmi, which I quoted there, says, why does the letter bait have two points? One pointing upwards, one pointing back. So it says this, if you ask the bait, who created you? It points up and it says God. If you ask the bait, what's his name? It points back to the Aleph and says, his name is one. What is the meaning of that? See, bait is the second letter, which means it's the number two. Before God created, what was there? Aleph, meaning... Total oneness, total unity, unique unity of God. That was it. When he created something, he created the physical world. What did he create? He created the appearance of plurality. He, so to speak, shattered the unity, what the Kabbalists call the shattering of the vessels, breaking the vessels. He created a lack of unity because we now feel separate from God. We feel independent. We feel separate from each other. Right? We're not back to the Aleph yet. So therefore, in creation, starts with bait, because bait symbolizes the idea that two, more than one. One of the reasons, one of the things we feel great pleasure in as humans is finding unity. Disparate things coming together, whether it's different tastes in food, whether it's a crowd coming together at a party or a football game, two humans coming together in love, right? Um, colors and textures coming together in art. We, with little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Right, going back to the Aleph, we we seek unity. Yeah. The Aleph is silent. Can you explain why it's silent? I guess because uh, it's it exists in thought without even being said. Because you see, the saying of something takes from the world of thought to the world of speech. Bait is the first. It's like the beginning of creation. Before creation, so to speak, there is. There's no expression of God. There's no expression of something. Bait is the first expression of something. You also note that the bait is shaped in such a way. You know, you ever seen the trucks, the FedEx trucks, right? And once someone points out the arrow, you can never not see it, right? So in the bait, there's not an arrow, but what there is is, is an arrow going that way, 
You know what I mean? Now we're going that way. Because what it says is, we can't have any access to what was before. We have no clue. We can't conceive of beyond time, beyond space, beyond ego. Right? So before creation, no clue. We can only look from that way. Okay? That's the idea of the, of the bait of Bereshit. God said, let there be light. Ethics of the Fathers says that the world was created with ten statements. Like God said, let there be this, let there be that, ten times. What's interesting is, the Talmud says, but there's only nine times in creation that it says God stated, or God said. What's the tenth? So the tenth that says, in the beginning, is also a statement of creation, which, remember, we mentioned, is what was created when God said, in the beginning, time. Right, so that's the statement of creation of time. Uh, there are pillars of creation in Genesis. There's a theme, if, and I don't have time to pursue it in, in depth, but if you look through Genesis, you'll find a theme, which is there are certain pillars, like chesed, kindness, to others, which is symbolized by Abraham. And then there are opposing forces to that. So, for example, in the generation of the, uh, uh, the, the first generation after Adam, there was, there was jealousy, kina, right? The opposite of kindness is kina, jealousy, right? What is jealousy? I, I don't want you to have it. Right? Not so much that I want to have it, but, but if, if, if you've got A and I don't, very upset. What's kindness? I want you to have. I want you to have. I want to give. Right? Abraham was kindness. Cain symbolizes, and, there's, and you'll see a lot of times through Genesis, right, that type of struggle between the giving and the, the giver and the taker, kindness and jealousy. You also see a struggle between din which is on the one hand justice, obedience and subservience to God, avodah, service of God, symbolized by Isaac, who of course became a sacrifice, almost, right, but he was at least willing to, the ultimate subservience to God, and the, and of course the opposite of that, which was kavod, person's self-importance. Tower of Babel, their sin was their self-importance. They said, we are, we, we don't need God because we are, we are gods. Human being has such power, such mastery, they went to the opposite extreme, so to speak. The extreme of, of I'm God. Yeah, you could call it pride as well. Yeah, honor probably is a more positive is is a more positive connotation, right? Pride is probably a better a better translation in this sense, right? You're right. Um, so um, I'll have to change that. But uh, but yeah, pride in the sense that we we the person feels full of themselves, full of themselves. You see, the generation of the flood was what we call tava, which is which is lust, which means that I'm a nothing. I'm basically an animal. I may as well act like one. The opposite pole of that is the generation of the Tower of Babel, who said we're gods. Mm-hmm. Right. So both of those are negative. Then, of course, you have emet, truth, or study of Torah, symbolized by Jacob, and the opposite of that is is tava, desire, anti-truth. Because you see, if you're not in control of your desires, you can never get to truth, because you'll always be a subjective. You'll always be looking at what's in it for me. We'll always be looking at if I accept this, then that. If I believe that, then that. And, and if a person can never get to truth. So the antithesis, so you have the three pillars of creation, which the eth- Mishnah, uh, the Mishnah ethics of the fathers said, the word, you know, uh, chesed and din and emet, kindness and justice and truth, or the way it puts it is Torah avodah, gemilut chasadin, learning of Torah, Jacob, avodah, service of God, that's Isaac, gemilut chasadin, kindness, that's Abraham. Opposite that, you have what's called kina, tava, kavod. Right? Jealousy, uh, lust, and pride are the three things. And, the, and in the book of Genesis, you have a lot of the opposition, so to speak, between those, between those two. And that's it for today. We've finished Genesis. And uh, next week, Rabbi Cole will give you uh, Exodus. 
Uh, and if anyone's interested, you can get my book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc., called Gateway to Judaism. Um, and uh, I will see you around. Thank you very much for coming. And if anyone's interested in uh, our Gateway's programs, I have um, brochure, like a general brochure, and also our Veterans Day, which we're having, actually next door, uh, I think, uh, Richmond's Tarrytown, uh, Double Tree. And a take out. Anyone's interested? Yeah. 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 Well, I, I'm not sure when they're opening, but I think we're going to be, I think that might be the opening December week. Uh, no, I think we're going to be there um, uh, November 11th. Oh, okay. I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, that's probably going to be the first time they're going to have people stay there. It's almost finished. I mean, no, oh, you well, think they're yeah. actually going to open it? No, I actually put <laughs> some people in there. And it's going to, yes, it's going to be open. Yeah. 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 It's imminent. Yeah. 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 It's about philosophy and what it is combined. It's like a total picture of Judaism. I try to go through the life cycle, the daily cycle, and everything about Judaism. I'll be back for uh, um, numbers of Deuteronomy. I'm Al Vincent Wilson. Okay, pleasure. Thank you for all for coming. Thank you.